Well, hello. It's great to see everyone. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors and one of the elders here. And I want to add my welcome to you being here and also send you a special welcome from our pastor elder retreat that we just returned from yesterday evening. We do this every year. We go away for about 24 hours to pray and to plan. You can see here a picture of our annual ice cream trip as part of that retreat because prayer and planning aren't anything without ice cream, right? And then we also had, led by our youth staff, um, this game that we had to do where we were uh, dinosaurs, eggs, and um, chickens. So that was something. Um, yeah, that was that. And then also we just had a great time. There's a photo of all of us gathered together, and uh, it's just good to be together. But one of our highlights is always the chance to pray for all of you. So we collected about 350 prayer requests uh, last week, and we really loved the chance to just pray through those together. It's such a privilege to hear what's going on in your lives and to, able to be able to lift that to the Lord. So thank you. And uh, we're back. Here we are. Well, uh, my wife and I have five kids. Four of them are currently in college. And so we gathered with a bunch of other people earlier in December to send our kids care packages. And this was a really wonderful time, families with kids in college. So I thought for us this morning, we'd do a little exercise. I want to imagine, I want to invite you to imagine that you are a college student, all right? And that you receive a care package from your parents. Last night after I got home from the uh, retreat, I baked some cookies to demonstrate this. And I want you to imagine that as a college student, you receive this in your dorm. And you open it up, and you're so excited. And what you find are broken cookies. You're kind of bummed, right? Because the cookies got broken. But let's be honest. What are you going to do? You're going to eat those broken cookies, right? Because <laughs> you're a college student, after all. We live in a world of exquisite beauty, of warm sunsets over the Pacific Ocean with a cool breeze, with scenic overlooks looking out over hills and valleys and rivers, a world where you could sit down with a friend who knows you well and share your heart a world where parents sacrifice for their children and demonstrate love for the next generation. But we also live in a world that is full of deep hurt and pain and brokenness. A world where people are hated and judged and killed for the color of their skin. A world where men and women don't receive equal opportunities a world where random acts of violence perpetrated for no apparent reason take the lives of innocent people and end what would otherwise be an incredible life. A world where even as we speak right now, somewhere in the world, children are being forced to do unthinkable things while someone watches online. And one of the deepest questions 
of the human experience is how do you make sense of those two truths together? How do we reconcile the fact that this world is stunningly beautiful, full of images and experiences and emotions and relationships that are so rich and incredible? And yet this world has acts of evil and violence and hatred that we can't even comprehend. How do we put those two things together? The world that we've inherited, the world that we live our lives in, the world that we exist in are kind of like broken cookies. There's something amazing, but there's something that we know isn't right. We're continuing today in the second week of our preaching series on the book of Genesis. And this book introduces us to some of the foundational ideas that form the heart of what we believe. Last week, Scott kicked us off by looking at the first two verses. And in those verses, we saw a God who was about to act. We talked about how the Spirit hovers over the waters, and there was this sense of expectancy, this sense that something was about to happen. As we pick up in verse 3 of Genesis 1, we're going to see exactly what does happen. Those first two verses are kind of a summary of the creation story, and in verse 3, we see the details of what happens. So this morning, we're going to look at most of the rest of chapter 1. Uh, we'll look at verses 3 to 24. And we're going to see how those days play out in the creation story. But one of the first things that we need to do as we read this text, which indeed we need to do whenever we read any text, is to figure out what questions the text is trying to answer. And we call ourselves Peninsula Bible Church because we believe uniquely that this book, this Bible, is God's revelation of himself. And in here, God has chosen to reveal certain things about himself for our sakes. So that when we come to a text, the first thing we have to do is figure out what is the text trying to tell us? We read the text on its own terms. We start with what the original author was trying to communicate And then, and only then, do we figure out what the text says to us. But sometimes we're tempted to bring our own questions to the text, the things we really want to know, and we can sometimes have a tendency to demand that the text address our issues, rather than reading the text and saying, what is this trying to tell us from the mouth of God? So as we really dive into this first chapter of Genesis, we're going to see a lot of clues about what the big idea is. And the big idea has to do with the fact that there is a God in heaven who created all that we experience and created it to be good. See, in the ancient culture where this text was originally written to, there were lots of different creation stories that attributed 
our experience in the world to other gods, Baal or Marduk or El or Asherah. But this text says, no, the one who created this world is the God of the Bible. And so we need to realize then that the big question being answered is a question of who, not how. We talked about this a little bit in an Explore God sermon from several weeks ago when we talked about whether faith and science are compatible. So if you want to dig a little bit deeper into that, I would recommend you go check out that sermon. But we sometimes come to this text asking questions like, how did life begin? How long did it take? Is evolution true? What about this? What does this word really mean? And those are interesting questions but we have to realize that those aren't the questions this text is trying to answer. The purpose of this text is to tell us who created and who God is. Now, scientists ask the question, how? And that's a really important question to ask. And we have a lot of scientists in the room and we applaud the effort to figure out how the world works because when we figure out how the world works, we can, we can do amazing things. But science was invented in the 16th century and this text was written long before that. And the text answers a different question. Some of you are scientists, but all of you are worshipers. We were all created to worship something. And this text answers the question, who should we worship? And that question is one of the most important questions that any human on the planet can ask. And so as we turn to this text, we want to look at this text and see the God who created all that we know. And I believe that it is one of the greatest tragedies of the Christian of Christian history, that for the last hundred years or so, this text in particular, rather than pointing people towards an exquisite God who loves the world and created everything, has been a source of debate and argument and has led a lot of people away from God rather than toward him. This book really is, this story really is the story of the creator rather than the story of creation. And so as we look at this text, we really want to find out who God is behind it. To do that, we're going to look um, a little bit high level. I'll have to warn you, last time I taught this, I did it in our men's ministry. And this chapter took me about three months to teach. So I hope you don't have afternoon plans. I'm just kidding. We're going to kind of go keep it a little high level. Look for the big idea here. And we're going to look particularly at days one and three to get a sense of what's going on here. Then we're going to look at this repeated phrase that shows up over and over about goodness. Try to understand that. And then we'll try to personalize it and figure out what this has to do with us living in our lives today. So we will start at the beginning. We're going to look at Genesis 1. I will start reading in verse 3. And God said let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. 
Now, what's going on here is that God is attributed with creating light. But as we read this, we recognize that it's not so much the physical experience of light that's being described. It's the difference between light and dark. And like I said, when we really read the text, we notice that three times it's repeated, light and dark, evening, morning, night and day. What's really happening here is God is creating the structures by which we experience the world, and one of the primary ones is simply time, day and night, the passage of time. And so we are being told here that this thing that we live within that controls every second, literally, of our experience was created by God. And not only was it created by God, but God looked at it and said that it was good. Now that's important for us to realize because if we're honest, we realize that most of the time we don't experience time as good. Most of what you say about time is a complaint about time. We say, I don't have enough of it. I have to manage it. Um, Or maybe there's too much of it. This line is too long. I ordered this thing from Amazon. Why isn't it here yet? We're either wishing for time to speed up or slow down. We always want something different from what we experience. So it's important for us to hear God say, I created time and I created it to be a blessing. It is good. Now, as we get to day two, We read about God creating what the scriptures call a firmament. And in the minds of the ancients, this would have been some type of device that held back the waters above from the waters below. And what the ancients believed is that that firmament was responsible for holding the waters up there, but every now and then it opened up and let waters down when it rained. And so in day two, we hear that God is the creator of weather. One of the other things that dominates our experience, every day we live in a world where the weather affects us. And so again, we hear this message very clearly that God is the one who's responsible for the weather and it is good. Because we can say the same things about weather. Sometimes the weather is our friend and we love to sit and bask in the sun on a cool morning. But sometimes the weather seems like it's trying to kill us. Blizzards, hailstorms, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes. And so we need to know that this thing that dominates our experience that sometimes is a blessing and sometimes is a curse was ultimately created by God and it is good. We continue seeing in day three this kind of pattern of God creating the things of this world that dominate our daily experience. I'm going to keep reading verse 11 to 13. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to their kind. 
And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. I've always wondered when I read Genesis why we aren't told that God created oak trees. The only trees we're told that God created are fruit trees. Trees bearing fruit with seed in them. Now, I think God did create oak trees. We actually believe that God created everything. But what we realize when we really focus in on the text is that God is only describing that he created certain things. He's not actually talking about everything he created. And these particular things that are being described happen to be the things that dominate the day-to-day lives of the ancient Israelites. If any of you are farmers or know of farmers, you would know that seeds are literally the future. And if you don't have good seed or if you don't have enough seed, you're in trouble. Four times in three verses, God says how he created seeds abundantly. And so what we see here is God is creating the structure by which people in the ancient world make life work. That's what we call an economy. It's what we do in the world to survive and get by day to day. In this particular case, it was an agricultural economy. And so the talk is all about vegetation and plants and seeds and fruit. But once again, we could say that sometimes the economy is our friend and sometimes it is our foe. And yet we need to know that God created it and it was meant to be good. So last week, as Scott talked about Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, we saw this phrase that the earth was formless and void. that There was no structure to the earth and there was nothing in it. And we talked about how what God begins to do is to form the earth and fill it. He creates structures and he fills them. So what we've seen in days one, two, and three is God creating the structures of time, weather, and the economy. And then as we keep going into days four, five, and six, we see how God fills those things with the things that belong in those containers. So here's a little chart that that can show you what we're talking about. This chart helps us to see how God forms and fills. In day one, he forms time. In day four, he creates seasons and years and celebrations and the rhythms that take up time. In day two, he creates the weather. And then in day five, he creates the birds and the fish, the, the creatures that occupy those realms that are responsible for the weather. In day three, he creates the economy, sea, land, and plants. And then in day six, he creates the members of that agricultural economy, humans and livestock and animals that that play out within that. If we think about this a little further, we could realize that all of these things that God is described as having created are the things in this world that, first of all, dominate our daily lives, but second of all, are the things that we can't control. I can't control time. I can't control the weather. I can't control the economy. I can't control 
my kids. I can't control my spouse. I can't control my boss. I can't control the person that's driving on one-on-one next to me. There's so much stuff in this world that I cannot control that affects me each and every day. And what I need to know if I'm going to be a human in this world is that all of those circumstances that exist outside of my control are under the control of the one who created them. That there is a who who created the world and made it to be good. And so this text over and over again encourages us to look for the who behind the world that we live in. Look for the who behind the world that we live in. And this is something we need to do every day because we are subject to so many forces that we can't control. And we spend so much of our time and energy trying to control things to make them work the way we want them to work. And a lot of that is the stuff of life, but behind it is this attitude of trying to control things that are outside of our control. But then Genesis 1 comes into our lives and says, God created it. God's in charge of it. God is over all of those things that determine your life. If we accept that, though, it actually leads to another question. Because to say that God is in control of the things that aren't under your control begs the question for you, who is that God? If God's controlling all of those things, whose side is he on? Can I trust him? Remember back to when you received these broken cookies in this box. As a college student, what would have been your assumption as to how the cookies got broken? Any thoughts? Post office, shipping, in the mail, yeah. You probably would have thought they got broken in transit, right? You know, things get shaken and thrown around. But there's another possibility here. Because it is possible that your parents baked some cookies for you, opened a box, and said, my kids don't deserve full cookies. All my kids deserve are the broken remnants of cookies. So it's possible that your parents broke the cookies before they put them in the box. Now, most of you, and probably most of your children, wouldn't think that of you. My kids, on the other hand, <laughs> if they got a box of broken cookies, they'd say, Dad probably has some sermon illustration <laughs> in mind here. How we assume that this world we live in got broken. If you remember, I referenced the fact that there were other creation stories in the ancient world. And the interesting thing is that all of those other creation stories attribute the brokenness of the world to the actions of the gods who created the world. Do you follow that? All of those other creation stories said the world is broken because the gods made it broken. So in the Egyptian creation story, it tells a story about a, a god who was split open 
and the world emerged from the broken violence of a split God. And that is the reason why there's so much tension in the world. In the Canaanite story, there's a God, El, who shares power with a God named Baal, and there's constant friction between those two gods, which is the reason behind the friction on earth. And so all of the stories around the Israelites in the ancient world said, gods gave us broken cookies. The gods broke them themselves. But the biblical story says that's not how it happened. The biblical story said God created a world that was whole. And he gave it to us whole. We know this because the text over and over again emphasizes this. Listen to all of these references. Genesis 1, 4a, and God saw that the light was good. Genesis 1.10, God saw that it was good. Verse 12, God saw that it was good. We have all of these verses. Verse 18, God saw that it was good. Verse 21, God saw that it was good. Verse 25b, God saw that it was good. And finally, at the end of the story, God looked and saw everything that had behaved that he had made. And behold, it was very good. The Genesis story says that God is not responsible for the broken world. By this repetition, we can tell that this is the the big idea that this text wants us to understand. And it's really remarkable that that story was different from the ancients' versions of creation, but it's also really different than the stories that our culture has about creation. Because the stories that we tell about creation mostly have to do with creation springing up on its own. And there's a notable absence of any kind of evaluation. There's nothing good about a creation that emerges out of nothingness. There's no God, there's no good, there just is what is. And we receive the world as it comes to us and there's nothing we can do about it. But into our culture, Genesis 1 speaks a critical truth. God is good, and he created this world to be good. God and his creation are good. That's the big idea. That's what we need to know. That's what we need to know for our lives, that God and his creation are good. And this message that there is something good about this world, there's something deeply good about the world we live in, resonates within us. We know it to be true that God and his creation are good. And so when Dr. Martin Luther King comes on the scene and when he starts saying powerful words, he says things like this, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. And so Dr. King speaks of a possible future, but the reason that it resonates with us is because we know deep down in our souls that there is something that ought to be, that this world ought to work a certain way, that there is a good 
buried beneath the brokenness of the world that we can tap into and reference and we can actually see it played out in more powerful ways. Without the idea that there is some good that the world was created to be, there's no reason to make it better. If the world we were given was broken and we've never known anything other than that, who are we to try to fix it? Who are we to even want something different? This is all there is. This is all there ever will be. But we have a different message. We have a message of a God who is good. And when you and I are honest, we know deeply that something within us is broken. We know that there are things within our soul that are not the way they ought to be. We can't even live up to our own standards. We can't live up to the standards of the people around us. We do things and then say, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why can't I do things better? And that's evidence of this brokenness, but this awareness that there was something good. These echoes of Eden that are buried deep in our souls so that we know the world ought to be a better place. And into that comes a God who says, I created it to be good, and because I'm the one who created it to be good, I'm the one who can fix it. See, there is no redemption without the idea of a good creation. There's no point in trusting a God to fix something if he didn't, in the first place, know how it ought to operate. And so core to the Christian story is this idea that the creation is good, it was broken, but God can repair it. And we need to hear that deep within our souls. It's important, too, that the first thing God says about creation is its goodness. The first thing out there. A lot of times, we tend to go into situations, and the first thing we notice is how it's broken, what needs to be fixed. But God says creation began as good. So where does that leave us? Well, thousands of years after the events of this story, a man was born in Nazareth, and he came as the word of God, as the living demonstration of God and of God's goodness. And he too spoke of the things that dominate our daily lives, that our existence is wrapped around. Listen to what he said about those things. This is Matthew 6, I'll start in verse 31. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's the same message. Jesus is giving the same message as Genesis 1. All of these things that dominate our daily existence, they're real. We need them. We need food. We need farmers. We need to plant. We need clothes. We need all this stuff. But there's so much of it that's outside of our control. 
And the only way to live in this world is to trust the one who controls it, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness because he is the one that takes care of us. All of this brings us back to the person of Jesus. All of this brings us back to the man who was there as God in the beginning of creation, who spoke the word to us, who died and came back to life, defeating death, so that what we do is to orient our lives towards him, to know that God is good, that his creation is good, and because of that, he is able to fix the brokenness within us. That's the good news of the gospel. So what's left to us to do is simply rest in that goodness, to rest in the goodness of Christ, to rest in the goodness of the one who created this world to be good, to rest in the goodness of the one who took on the brokenness on himself for our sake, to rest in the one who then declared victory over the brokenness and proved himself capable of fixing what is broken in the world. That's the call to us, to rest in his goodness. Think again about how life was described in this book of Genesis. It's an agricultural image. And if you know, again, any farmers, you know that planting things is really hard work. You have to do a lot of work to figure out how to plant it. You have to have the right seeds. You have to figure out irrigation. You have to know the seasons. You have to know the soil. You have to know the, the land that you're in. You do a lot of hard work and you try to make everything perfect. But at the end of the day, Anything good that happens is outside your control. It all comes from God. It all comes from the growth that he causes. And that's what the Christian life is like as well. There's a lot of stuff that we do, and there's a lot of stuff that God calls us to do to, to figure out how is it that we can structure our lives to live in his presence. How can we engage the world creatively and powerfully? But at the end of the day, Everything that happens is by the power of God. Everything good, any fruit, any success is only because he's the one who's made it work. And that's the good news of life with Christ, is that we get to walk in that. We get to walk knowing that God is the one who works, that God is the one who brings fruit, that God is the one at work in our life. I think it's probably some of us here that um, we're trying to control stuff. We're trying to control stuff in our lives. We see all these things around us that are outside of our control. We see the broken cookies and we're, we're desperately trying to take these pieces and, and make them stick back together. But it just doesn't work. And so I want to just give a little bit of space here if there's something that is on your heart, something that you're carrying, that you're desperately trying to fix, I want to just give you a little bit of space to offer that up to God, to rest in his goodness. Go ahead and just release that desire to control. Turn it over to the one who created this world to be good. This is the message that we need to hear. 
God is capable. God is good. He is the one in control. You have to depend on something or someone. Nobody makes it through life on their own. The choice is, who are we going to depend on? Who are we going to trust to fix the brokenness of our lives? And the only answer that makes sense is to trust the one who created this world in the first place, who created it to be good, who is good himself. That's why we worship God. That's why we come to Christ. That's why we believe that he lives in us, that he works through us, that every moment of our lives is lived in the presence of Christ when we follow him. As we continue in the Genesis series, we're going to hear more about how the world was broken, and we're going to see how God speaks into the issue of brokenness and offers promises of redemption. But for now, we simply rest in that repeated phrase, it was good, it was good, it was good. God is good to us. We're going to continue now in worship, and we're going to sing about this fact that the created world itself praises the goodness of God. And that we, as part of that creation, have the privilege to join with the words of the rocks and the mountains and the oceans, to join with them in declaring who it was that created this world, who it is that goodness comes from, and to submit ourselves to his love, to his goodness, and to his kindness. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that you created this world good, that, that because of that, we can have hope that it could be fixed, that you are the one who fixes and repairs and redeems, and that we can trust you with our lives. We can trust you with our families. We can trust you with our nation. We can trust you with our companies and our neighborhoods and our schools that we can enter into those places as agents of redemption, ultimately knowing that you are the one who brings it, that you are the power, and it is your work. Help us to rest in that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. <laughs>